What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. As a regular listener to Rachel's World, you may realize that I love literature. I'm a big fan of books and reading. However, while I do appreciate its usefulness, I am not as strong in my math skills. I certainly appreciate the importance of math literacies, but using them is not really my strongest trait. So that's why I love it when authors use one of my strengths, literature, to help me get broader experience with one of my weaknesses, math. Since I know there may be some of you out there who are like I am or have kids who share this balance of strength and weaknesses, today I'd like to share with you some of my favorite math books. One of my first recommendations is a series of math books by Cindy Neuschwander that features a brave knight named Circumference. Now, I'm sure all you listeners out there will get this little math joke, because who better to introduce math than someone who is connected to it through his name? Circumference introduces us to all kinds of math information, like radius, vertex, circumference, degrees, and angles. Filled with touches of humor and rich illustrations, this series is sure to help readers engage with math in a very fun way. One of my all-time favorite math books is Math Curse by John Sheska and Lane Smith. What if you were one day to develop a math curse that made everything around you into a math problem? Well, this is just what happens in this book. And while for most of us this would be a nightmare indeed, seeing it through the eyes of Sheska and Smith just allows us to really see how important math is to everyday life. A great list of math books can't end without talking about author Greg Tang, who is a master at using riddles and fables to bring math to life. Math Appeal Mind-Stretching Math Riddles features strategies for adding and subtracting, and Math Fables Lessons That Count introduces simple counting concepts. So if you are a math whiz or just someone who, like me, appreciates math, why not check out some of the great math books at our recommendation here at Rachel's World? Because you never know just how fun math can be. Do you ever get inundated by a child's incessant questions? Turns out that this can be a good thing. Being curious can lead to an interest in science or music, sports, or just about anything, really. Rebecca Sansom of the BYU Chemistry Department co-founded the BYU Chem Camp for elementary age students. She talks to Rachel today about encouraging our kids to notice the world around them and start investigating. Sansom has also served as an Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellow at the National Science Foundation in Arlington, Virginia, following eight years as a high school science teacher in Massachusetts and Utah. She has master's degrees in chemistry and education from Harvard University and Southern Utah University and is pursuing her doctorate. Here's Rachel and Rebecca Sansom. We're in studio with Rebecca today. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. I am so excited to talk to you today because we're going to talk about science literacy and science skills. And I think this is such an important topic. And I think it's wonderful that we have a woman of science sitting right here to, to help us understand this a little better. So maybe start out telling us a little bit about why do you think science is important? What is it important about the discipline of science that we should learn it? 
Um, well, that's a great question. Um, I think science is really a way of investigating the world, a way of learning about the world around us. And um, so there's a lot of things that go into that, things like asking questions, uh, designing experiments, making observations, drawing conclusions based on the evidence that you gather. And a lot of those skills um, are broadly applicable to other fields as well. If you think about it, most of the time when we're making decisions about things, we would hope that we're using evidence uh, to inform our decisions. We hope that we're paying close attention to the world around us, to the details and things. And um, so I think that science is really a great way especially for kids, to start kind of honing some of those observational skills, just paying attention, paying attention to the world around them. So how do we do that? I mean, particularly at those observational skills, are there things that we need to pay attention to as we are having science learning experiences, or maybe as we're just helping our kids learn to love science that we can focus in to help them learn those types of skills? Yeah, you know, I think that kids are naturally very curious about the world. I know when I was a kid, we, I grew up in California, and we went to the beach all the time and went camping at the beach. And I looked at the... Um, the little lights that were out on the horizon, and I would ask my mom, what is that? And she said that they were the offshore wave makers um, because explaining what an oil rig was is a little too complicated. And um, so I think actually just um, engaging with kids in the question asking that they do naturally is important. I think when kids are out in nature, they do notice things around them. They'll notice the texture of the mud that they're playing in or the little bugs that they find crawling around or other things about the world. And I think the most important thing to do as um, as a sort of guide, I guess, for, for kids would be to just engage with them in that questioning and looking at the world and noticing things. And I think especially today where we have so much technology that people get distracted by their phones and their iPads and their little game machines and whatever, just removing some of that stimulation and, and going out in the world, in nature, and making observations about things is, is so important, I, both for developing those science skills, but also just for kind of maintaining sanity. <laughs> I, I love that. Was that part of your personal journey to become a scientist? Was this kind of curiosity as a child part of what was encouraged with you as a child? Or was that just something you naturally developed as you grew? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I was thinking about it as I was sort of preparing to come to come talk with you. And I, I know that as a kid, I was really um, sort of annoying to my mom because I would ask questions all the time about everything. And, um, you know, eventually she came up with the offshore wave maker story because she was like done with the, well, why? Why? Can you tell me more about that? So I think curiosity definitely played a part in it. I think um, for me, I had a natural aptitude for science, a more more so than some other subjects, you know. And I think that I was really lucky to have some great teachers. I, you know, especially I remember in high school, middle school and high school, I had some fantastic science teachers who got me excited about looking at the world and learning things. And I think the great thing about science is that, you know, I don't want to disparage history or something like that. History is like my least favorite subject. <laughs> Hopefully people will forgive me. That's okay. But, um, Other people are interested in history <laughs> and they can take up the snack. So we're no, good. <laughs> no. So, um, but like history for me, it felt like it was like, it was sort of like a dead thing. It's like stuff that's already happened, you know? And science is alive. Science is, is now. Science is, is growing. Science is happening. We're learning new things all the time. And so for me, it was really exciting to just kind of be 
to think about being a part of something that was alive and, and that I could continue to learn and grow and explore different things. I can really tell that you have joy and passion for this subject, and it just comes through in your voice. And I hope the listeners can hear that because it's obvious you really love what you're talking about. So how can we do that for kids? I mean, how can we develop that passion and love? Maybe yeah. even if they don't have the aptitude, maybe even if yeah. science is like their history. Sure. How do we how do we help that? Are there ways we can do that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think um, – and. Yeah, it gets into a lot of other things, too, because there's also you you brought up earlier in our discussion the the issue of girls versus boys and their relationship to science. And that's a socially constructed thing, really. And so how do we how do we encourage it? I think um, I think I'm the same thing is true, just engaging with kids and um I know for a lot of parents that science is scary. Science and math are scary. And they think, gosh, my kid's in like fourth grade and I can't do their math homework anymore. (laughs) And now what am I going to do? And I think uh, with science, the nice thing is that it's not so much about what you know or what people know. It's about investigating the world. And so there, there isn't necessarily a right answer to everything. And that's the joy of science is that it's an experiment and it's an investigation. And so I think just encouraging... Again, encouraging kids to notice the world, to ask questions, um, to start investigating the world around them. I, I love that sense of asking questions. And I think asking questions is fundamental to a lot of disciplines. It's just the types of questions we ask and maybe how they're answered is a little bit different. So what is different about the types of questions that you ask in science that you might not ask in like history or Mm -hmm. literature or some other discipline? Sure. Well, that's a great question, too. I think the big difference about science is that in order for any question to be a scientific question, it has to be um, there has to be some kind of observational evidence, right? So we have to be able to observe something that will give us information about that question. So, for example, um, you know, in literature, you might think about, like, what are the motivations for these characters? And, like, motivations for characters is not really a thing that you can test in a scientific way. Um, so it has to be something, you know, if we were going to test it in a scientific way, we'd have to say, what does motivation look like? How can I, how can I measure motivation? And so it, it becomes different because it's about this measuring and the observing, observing things in the world. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. I think sometimes there's a sense of inference that we make with like history and literature that isn't always there in in science, mm-hmm. particularly um, when we get to the conclusions. Mm-hmm. In science, you may start with the inference at the beginning, but when you get to the conclusion, you need to see observable You have things. to have evidence. Yeah. yeah, there has to be evidence. So when you look at all of these things, why, why do you think that this is like an essential skill? There's so much out there now about STEM and, mm-hmm. you know, science, technology, math, engineering, those kinds of disciplines. Why do you personally feel that this yeah. is is critical for our students to have these kind of scientific literacies. Yeah, you know, I think that there are two main reasons that I think it's important. So one reason is that um, everybody needs to be able to make decisions based on evidence. So often in the world, we see all around us people that are making decisions without even considering evidence, right? Just based on what they their whim that day. And actually, you, you do a better job getting through life if you make decisions based on evidence, right? And so that's a crucial skill. And then, and then the other thing, and probably I, this one is really important to me, um, I, I think that 
so many issues in the world today are really scientifically based. If you think about, you know, genetic modification or climate change, um, nuclear power, there's there's so many issues that we face as a society that really require a level of literacy with the science um, that we it's 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 crucial to our society that our kids have that understanding of what is science, what is good evidence, et cetera. That is a perfect way to wrap this up. Thank you so much for opening the wonderful world of science to us today and and help us understand a little bit more about what scientific literacies are and maybe about how we can help our students learn more about them. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. BYU chemistry teaching professor Rebecca Sansom giving advice to parents and teachers about encouraging our children to ask questions and be more observant of the world. Up next on Worlds Awaiting, Rachel welcomes children's book author Andrea Davis Pinckney, who talks about what got her started writing. She also reflects on the discipline of writing and the new ideas that emerge from the struggle. Pinckney is author of many books for children and young adults, including picture books, novels, and nonfiction. Her books have received multiple awards. Here's Andrea Davis Pinckney with Rachel. We're on the phone today with Andrea Davis Pinckney. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rachel. Nice to be here. Oh, I am so honored and excited to talk to you today and to share your insights about your work. And is this is, is this something you started out doing as, as a child when you when you were a young girl? Did you, did you want to write? Was this your passion? Uh, Let me say to anybody who's listening to this, I was a terrible student. I mean, I was a good person, but um, I really struggled in school. And um, thankfully, my dad in the second grade gave me a notebook. And he said, I want you to write everything that's important to you in this notebook. Write about your cat, uh, Mickey. Write about your dog. Write about your little sister, your little brother. Write about things that make you happy and sad and excited excited and nervous and angry. And that was the beginning. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was becoming a writer because that notebook allowed me to express how I felt and what made me happy and excited. Um, And when I was in the sixth grade, I won a writing contest at my school. And then I knew I really enjoyed doing this. It's funny, the prize uh, for winning the writing contest was that I got to take my whole family out to the Red Lobster restaurant And I remember just feeling great. I remember feeling like I can now feed my whole family with my writing. (laughs) And it's something I still do to this day. Oh, that's a wonderful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it is a great thing to see yourself as a writer and to be able to to have that identity. But there probably were some challenges along the way. So what are some of those things that were challenging for you as you developed this identity as a writer? Well, uh, one of the, uh, I guess, great realities of being a writer is that one has to be very vulnerable. I have to be willing to kind of, uh, you know, bear my soul, if you will, even when I'm writing about other people because I'm kind of putting my myself out there. Um, and then there's the other fact that everything I think of or write doesn't get published. So, 
uh, there's rejection out there. You know, I, um, you know, write things over and over. I can write something 10 times. I can work on something for a decade. I can struggle with it. And it's still in a file and has never seen the light of day. So um, it's interesting because as a writer, I write daily. Um, people say, do you write when you don't feel like writing? Do you write when you don't feel well? Do you write when your house is a mess? You know, do you write when you're wait- waiting for the guy to come and fix the boiler? You know, yes, 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 and yes. And that's a challenge. I don't always love to do it, but I do it. It's like working out. It's like being an athlete. I have to kind of be in the constant pursuit of the training, if you will. And sometimes that ain't always easy. It's so true. It isn't always easy. And I love sharing that, particularly with our children listeners, because sometimes they see a book and they think, oh, this book came formed just like this, and it was easy, and it was simple. But it, it isn't always. There's joys and there's struggles. So particularly with A Poem for Peter, was there anything that was really exciting or something wonderful that happened during the creation of that book? Well, um, I'm glad that you mentioned, you know, young people and folks feeling like a book just kind of arrived. I typically write a manuscript 10 times. I, I do up to 10 revisions on a picture book before I really get it right. In the case of a poem for Peter, um, the excitement came when I decided that I was going to create Ezra's story in the third person and Peter's story kind of in the first person as if I'm speaking to Peter. And when I finally realized that those two kind of parallel narratives were going to exist like a duet, like two, two people singing in harmony, and when I figured that out, that these kind of two braided narratives would work together again as, as two voices coming together. Then I got really excited and it started to take form. I, I really do love that about A Poem for Peter, this kind of interconnectedness that it has, because I think it really shows that creative process of the the author as a voice for the character, but also the character as a voice for the author. And I right. love that sense that you, you bring to that through through that braided narrative. Do you feel that way as, as you're writing? Do you feel like you're being a voice for some of these wonderful people that you're writing about and that you're offering something of yourself in return? Well, it's interesting. I really believe that, you know, books have a a heart and soul and voice and life of their own. And I sometimes really feel like I am just a vehicle. Uh, I feel like a character, a narrative, an approach is almost whispering to me, uh, telling me how I should tell this story. And I, I think that books again, have their own wisdom, and that they are smarter than we are sometimes. I I feel like it's, again, I am the vehicle telling the story, and uh, the book is what ultimately is the, uh, I guess, example of that. I think that is a wonderful combination of how this all works together. Another portion of this, particularly with your books, is there is also an artist that's involved in creating their own voice. So how does that work for you, particularly as you're working with artists? And how, how do you work with them to help their voice come out as well as your voice come out and the voice of of the people you're telling their story about? Um, You know, it's so interesting. Most people don't realize that authors and illustrators do not collaborate. 
We don't hang out at Starbucks. Um, we don't talk about the work. It is the job of the editor and the publishing company to keep those individuals separate. So in the case of A Poem for Peter, Steve Johnson, Lou Fancher, the husband and wife, uh, illustrators of that book. I never conversed with them. I didn't speak to them. I did get a sneak peek of some of the sketches, but I really had no say in it. Um, I've got a unique situation because I am married to a children's book illustrator. Um, but even with the case of myself and my husband, Brian Pinkney, his studio is not in our home. It's in a completely different neighborhood. I don't go there. I don't peek in the window. I don't ask him what he's doing. I don't see that artwork being created. I see it when it's finished uh, and it's about to be uh, sent to the publisher. So I really have no say. It seems counterintuitive, but there's a very good reason why authors and illustrators are kept separate. And that's because an illustrator should feel free to think of something I would never think of. Uh, in the case of a book that I wrote, um, a picture book biography on Ella Fitzgerald, if you look at the cover of that book, it's illustrated by my husband, Brian, and it's Ella Fitzgerald coming out of the front of that book. She looks like a big balloon in the Macy's Day Parade. Her skirt is like a big globe with buildings from all over the world of where she visited and toured. Had I tried to tell my husband what I wanted, he never would have thought of that. So I really just let the artists do what they what comes to them creatively. And I love that in the end, this all becomes just a beautiful collaboration that everybody has their own voice and everybody brings their own unique character to the work. And then together, it, it takes on a life as a life as its own, as you said. It's true. Yeah. When you're doing all of this work, what, what are some of the challenges that you face? What are some of the most difficult things that you find about writing? I think the most difficult thing that I find about writing is how am I going to tell this story? How am I going to convey a lot of facts? And a lot of my books are historical in nature. They involve a lot of fact-checking. They involve a lot of uh, you know, resource material and, and correctness, if you will, in terms of the content and what's true and what's not true. And how that's a challenge. How am I going to pack a bunch of facts into a book for young people that is interesting? You know, when I go visit classrooms, which I do really all over the globe, I will ask students, how many of you really love nonfiction and very few hands go up? How many of you don't like nonfiction? And a lot of the hands go up. And I say, why don't you like nonfiction? And they say things like, it's like yucky spinach. You know, it, people feel that books that have factual material, it's like eating something that's good for you but doesn't taste good. So one of my challenges as an author of that kind of informational book, how am I going to make it taste good? How am I going to make it yummy to young readers? And uh, that's where the many revisions come in. Well, and I also think one of the ways you do that is your beautiful use of language. I love how you use alliteration and other forms of figurative language that bring that sense of the poetic as well as just the sense of poetic words that may be more in prose, that you just you bring this beautiful sense of language. Is is that something that you're really tied into? Do you love words and and playing with them? Is that something that has always been a part of how you write? I do. And reading should be a fun experience. I listen to a lot of music. 
Uh, I go to a lot of theater, and I listen to the language of the script. Uh, and one of the beauties of living in New York City, which I do, is that I'm often on the subway or kind of on the sidewalks, and I'm hearing people speaking and uh, expressing themselves in so many different ways, and that's really just my big inspiration. I love that, just soaking up the world around you and pulling in all of that wonderful inspiration. When you have children read your works, what what is the inspiration that you hope that, that they will take away from your works? My real hope is that young people will read the books and be able to share them. You know, one of the things I've learned is that if you're a person, a child, who may not like to read a lot of words or read a lot of books, you can take it in small chunks. And a lot of my books, as you mentioned, have what I am striving for, which is this lyrical narrative. And my hope is that maybe through that vehicle, they'll be able to pass along to another friend, hey, did you know about Ezra Jack Keats? Did you know about uh, Ella Fitzgerald or Duke Ellington or Sojourner Truth? And the other thing I've learned is that, uh, or that I hope, is that they will take in the visuals because there is something known as visual literacy, and that is reading. That counts as reading. Looking at the pictures counts as reading. So by virtue of the narrative and the, the uh, visuals, my hope is that they'll come away knowing something that they may not have known before, even if it's a small little bit of information. And I want to remind young people and families that reading is something that can be done together, and that reading a book with mom or dad or whoever, uh, caregiver, sister, brother, um, classmate, friend, teacher, it's really fun. Reading is fun. And it should be. And you make it so, particularly nonfiction. Your nonfiction isn't spinach. It's chocolate cake. Oh, thank you, Rachel. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your graciousness today. It has been a wonderful honor to speak with you. Yes, thank you, Rachel. Children's book author Andrea Davis Pinckney talking with Rachel about how she got started writing and the rewards that come in the midst of the challenges of creating books. We finish up the show with two poems by Robert Louis Stevenson, Pirate Story and The Wind, read by Garrett Rushforth. Pirate Story from a Child's Garden of Verses by Robert Louis Stevenson. Three of us afloat in the meadow by the swing, three of us abroad in a basket on the lee. Winds are in the air, they are blowing in the spring, and waves are on the meadow like the waves there are at sea. Where shall we adventure today that we're afloat, wary of the weather and steering by a star? Shall it be to Africa, a steering of the boat, to Providence or Babylon, or off to Malabar? Hi, but here's a squadron a-rowing on the sea. Cattle on the meadow a-charging with a roar. Quick, and we'll escape them. They're as mad as they can be. The wicked is the harbor, and the garden is the shore. The Wind, from A Child's Garden of Verses, by Robert Louis Stevenson. I saw you toss the kites on high and blow the birds about the sky. And all around I heard you pass like ladies' skirts across the grass. 
Oh wind, a blowing all day long, oh wind that sings so loud a song. I saw the different things you did, but always you yourself you hid. I felt you push, I heard you call, I could not see yourself at all. Oh wind, a blowing all day long, oh wind that sings so loud a song. Oh you that are so strong and cold, oh blower, are you young or old? Are you a beast of field and tree? Or just a stronger child than me? Oh wind a-blowing all day long. Oh wind that sings so loud a song. Two poems by Robert Louis Stevenson. Pirate Story and the Wind. Read by BYU Radio sound engineer Garrett Rushforth. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.